Well, good morning. My name is Jeff Lilly, and I am one of the shepherds here at Fullerton Free. And this morning, we're picking up this spring training. The next step in that is that we're looking at the spiritual disciplines. And so we've covered that whole idea of listening to the Word of God, studying Scripture, having that time in the Word. And then we last week, we talked about prayer. And this week is about fasting. You might have guessed that by the, the Scripture passages we read. And, uh, but I don't know about you, but for me, that was powerful that to literally just look at the verses and have them come up and stop and realize, well, there's one of the key saints of scripture. There's another key saint of the scripture. There's, and as the list went on, you found fasting inserted into story after story of scripture that holds itself out and says that fasting in this regard is actually sort of threaded throughout the entire Bible. And this spiritual discipline has some attachments to it that even as I studied, I learned new things and stopped and said, man, I really never saw it this way. So I'm a, I'm a little excited to be able to share it with you and to say, hey, there's some things here. The hope is, is that by the end of, of t- this morning, that you might actually think about skipping lunch. I mean, what kind of goal is that? Um, that it would be the thing that it would, it would cause you to skip a meal. Now, we'll get into this, but I want to talk about the spiritual disciplines just for a second. Because that comes out of that First Timothy 4, 7 that literally says, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness or train yourself for the practice of godliness. That the reason you would take on these disciplines is for a purpose. There's, a, there's an end goal. There's, some, there's an end in mind. You're imagining a future that here's where I am and here's where I want to be. And this concept would be that you would come into taking on these disciplines studying the Bible, listening, praying, fasting, and we have more to come. But as we come into those disciplines, the idea is like, well, why would I want to do this? And to have that end in mind, that that goal that you're looking for, an intended purpose is an important thing about this. And 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, for the purpose of godliness. That it literally is a question from the very beginning. If you don't want to be godly, if you don't want to be more like Christ, if you don't want to have a sanctified life, then don't worry about this. Just don't do any of these things. And pretty much you're going to just be left to your flesh. And we've met people like that. And that's what you will become. Good for you. Or... You could discipline yourself and actually become more like Christ, that you could become more godly, that you could have God flow through you and in your life for those around you. So that's the purpose for the disciplines is that it actually changes us. It makes us into different people. And that's my encouragement to you this morning is that you would do just those things. Now, I have to tell you that because Darren, um, he assigns this passage or the passage, the, the concept of the spiritual discipline of fasting to me. And I'm like, oh, bummer. That means I'm probably going to have to do it. And uh, sure enough. But the more I did it, the more I realized that I'm actually really good at this, that, that I'm an expert at this. And you may not know this, but I have devised this thing that I refer to as a nightly fast. And pretty much every night when I go to bed at 10 o'clock, I don't eat until about six in the morning. And I've been able to do that almost daily. There's a couple of times that I've gotten up and actually gone to the fridge. But for the most part, I've been able to do that pretty much every night. So nightly fasts are fairly easy. They're easy to go. 
Now, we know that's not what this is talking about, right? That's a time when you, you have not eaten, but it's not just not eating. The definition of fasting, and I saw a lot of different ones in studying this, but the one I'm going to give us this morning is just this. Willfully depriving yourself of earthly good for spiritually better. It's the putting aside the good for the better. Willfully depriving yourself of earthly good for spiritually better. The idea that I might put a meal aside that is good. There's nothing sinful with a meal. And yet in the, the other side of it is by putting aside, there's something better that can be gained by doing just that. Now, there's a lot of different types of fasts. And, and the idea is that, that some fasts are harder than others. Some are easier than others. It's that type of thing. And so there's, you'll see as we jump into some of these passages that there are some challenges to some that make it pretty difficult. The idea of just simply fasting while we sleep doesn't have really much sacrifice. We fall asleep. We can't eat. If we could eat while we slept, we probably would. I mean, that's just the way that goes. So when we look at this, the willful depriving that I make a choice in this starts to make it hard. And that idea of it being hard is something that causes that most believers actually kind of avoid it a little bit. We put it off. We think, yeah, I've done that once or twice in my life. And almost more as a curiosity, almost more that we're just like, yeah, I've never fasted before. Maybe I will try it. And I'm not even saying that's wrong. But the encouragement here is that it would become something that was a normal part of our spiritual walk. That it was a normal part of our training to become more godly, more like Christ in this process. So one of the things when you heard the verses as they were read, and we're about to go through some more. But one of the things is, is you see these saints of God and you've got, you've got Moses and you've got um, David and you've got Elijah and you've got Daniel and you've got Esther and you've got Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah. And we can just start stacking them up and you get into the New Testament and you have John the Baptist and Jesus and Paul and Barnabas. And I could go on and on, but there seems to be a common denominator here. That if you look at the saints who have the deepest stories, those deepest intimate moments with, with God, you find fasting is attached to their walk with the Lord. So that question is, is do I want that common denominator in my life? Do I want to bring fasting in to my life so that I might be like the saints and, and experience what they experience? Well, as I was studying this, one of the things that popped out really quickly was that the, the saints, almost, it's almost as if the ancient wisdom from the saints is they understood something different about the difference between the body and the soul. The idea that this body is from dust to dust. This idea that, that God created man out of the dirt and he put a spirit into that body. That that physical body means one thing and there's a spiritual side of us that means another. And in that side, that's why that definition of willfully depriving the body for the sake of that deeper, more eternal spirit. And the, the saints had kind of got that. And so they, when they would choose to pursue God, a spiritual being, they would deprive their body for that process. So fasting becomes just like that. Well, let's jump into this really quick. 
If you've got your Bibles, it's going to be a little bit of a Bible drill. We're not going to spend a long time on any one of these stories, but I just want to pull it out that each of them, whenever you see that, see fasting. Fasting is not an exercise in and of itself for itself. We don't fast to say we fasted. The goal of fasting is that it would have a purpose, that there would be a reason you're fasting. There's some reason why the fast happens. And so we're going to take a quick look. I will tell you that there are scholars out there that have a list of 25 reasons you could fast. There are others that have a list of 12. There's another that has a list of 17. And so you look at all these lists of reasons for fasting. I simply went and pushed some of them together. And so we're going to look at five reasons for fasting, the five purposes that I would encourage you and challenge you to consider why you might fast. So with that, um, I'll give you all five and then we'll start going through them. Number one is guidance. Number two is grief. Number three is protection. Number four is repentance. And number five is intimacy, intimacy and worship with God. They don't have to be in any given order. There's not a priority list there. One's not more important than five. It's just simply these are the things that as you look at Scripture, you find fasting attached to at least one of those five. So we're going to jump at guidance first, and we're going to turn to Judges 20. And in Judges 20, verses 24 to 28, right in that range, this is a story where um, basically the Benjamites have done a bad thing in the nation of Israel. And so the, the Israelites, it's where the concubine is, is, she's raped, she's abused. So then the guy cuts her into pieces and mails the body parts out to the rest of the tribes of Israel. They then come in and decide we need to address what's gone on and, and with the Benjaminite tribe. And so they come to war against that. But as they fight their first battle, they lose. And they come before God and they say, God, are we doing something wrong here? And so they're, they're a little bit dismayed and they come before God and he, and he says, go up again. And they go up a second day and they lose the battle the second day. And so the other tribes of Israel are a little bit baffled because they're like, what's going on? Why is this happening? So in verse 26 of uh, chapter 20 of Judges, it says, then all the people of Israel, the whole army went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and they fasted that day until evening and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord for the um, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers or shall we cease? And the Lord said, go, go up for tomorrow. I will give them into your hand. So here we have a case of this fasting and the fasting is coming before the Lord and they're seeking the Lord's guidance. So this is pretty clear that if you're at a point in your life where you've got big decisions as you're making things you're wrestling with, and it might be about a job, whether you work at a particular place, whether you should stop working at a particular place, whether you move to a particular city, whether you move to a particular neighborhood, who you marry, those are big questions. And, and the implication would be with those things that are heavy on your heart, that are, are capturing your mind. Fasting would be a natural thing that you would stop and say, this is a big enough decision that I want to give this to the Lord, that I'm literally going to come to God and pray for his guidance. Number two, grief. Again, another famous story is just simply that story of when David, uh, 
ends up sleeping with Bathsheba, another man's wife. He has the other man killed because she gets pregnant. The baby she gets pregnant with is now sick. And the baby is, is not doing well at all. And so David realizes all of this has been caused by him. And so he goes before the Lord and he begins to pray and to fast. And so this is out of Second Samuel twelve sixteen, And it says, And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of the house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. And on the seventh day, the child died. This concept that what David is doing is coming before God and he's fasting for, for this baby, but he's torn up with grief himself. And the striking thing about this story is the turn in it is that once the baby dies, David stops fasting. He gets cleaned up and puts on normal clothes and he goes out to eat a meal. And, and all of his servants are looking at him like, what are you doing? I mean, everybody fasts and, you know, and grieves after the baby dies. You've been doing that before. And David's answer is, while there was time to actually affect God's heart, that's when I wanted to come and cry out. This idea of fasting is the idea that while there's something to do, we would do something about it. That fasting becomes a point that we come up to the heart of God and begin to plead with him. I know that uh, in some cases, fasting for me and my life has been a little more casual. It's been the times when I'm fully caught up into who God is and what he's doing in my life that I can almost put aside food. That if I'm really caught up in the moment with God, I don't need to eat. I love what I'm doing with the Lord. But then when it comes to this concept of grief, I've also found that I come to a point of fasting with that. And um, many of you have heard uh, the stories of our family, but uh, our oldest son, he had twin babies, uh, Avery and Asher, and when those babies were about seven months old, he woke up in the night because uh, Avery was crying, and he came out and found that Asher was still, was cold, was not breathing. And so he began to give CPR. He picked up the phone. He called Eugenie and I, and he said to us, Mom, Dad, Asher's not breathing. The paramedics are here now. I'm going to the hospital. Please pray. And he hung up the phone. When that phone rang, Eugenie and I were in a, a fellowship party with some staff at Hume and we had food and we had coffee and we had all kinds of great things around, desserts, and we were eating and we were enjoying. From the moment of that phone call, I stopped eating. I didn't stop and say, I'm going to start fasting right now. My appetite left me. And it was at that moment from the, all that night of just prayers and trying to set up plane flights that we were in California, they were in Georgia. And that day of flying all the way to Georgia, the, the stewardess would come and say, hey, do you want a, a, the, the peanuts or the crackers? And I, it was like, no, we didn't want anything because we were so consumed by the grief and what was happening in that moment. Asher ended up losing his life. And our prayers, like David's at this moment, didn't amount to turn the heart of God. But we're going to talk about that in a second. But grief in this moment is a time of fasting as well. Number three, protection. 
This one, uh, there's, there's multiple stories in scripture about fasting for protection. Probably the clearest one is the story of Esther. She becomes a queen, but she's Jewish. And if you remember that whole story of Mordecai, he's a, a kind of like a first cousin for her. There's a whole thing where there's a guy in the king's palace named Haman, and he wants to kill all the Jews and literally tricks the king into creating an edict that all Jews are about to be killed. So... Esther, who's a queen, is a Jew. She realizes this is going to kill me as well. Mordecai goes to her and says, you have to do something or all the Jews are going to be killed. You've got to do something. So in Esther, and we'll jump in right here in chapter four, um, Mordecai is talking to Esther and he says, "For if, this is 4.14, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And what she means there is you go to the king without being summoned. The king will put you to death unless he holds out a scepter. And that's by his choice. So she's literally saying, pray and fast that when I go to the king on behalf of all the Jews, that God will grant mercy. So she prays and fasts for protection. And throughout scripture, we have this again and again. And so another one might be, you just look at what's going on in your life right now and what might be broken or what the fears you might have. Go to God in prayer and fasting and seek him as a strong tower. Seek him as your refuge. Seek him as your protection. So we have grief, um, we have um, protection, and we have guidance. The fourth one is repentance. And I have to tell you right off the bat, this one is most likely to apply to you right now. That throughout scripture, the most common reason for fasting is repentance. Most of the time when God calls you to fast, it's repentance. Even the day of atonement in the Old Testament was set up specifically to say at least fast once a year for repentance, to seek atonement from God for all the sin that you have. So again, it's one of my favorite questions. Uh, how many of you have sinned today? And then those of you who aren't raising your hands are lying. So you just sin now. So you just can't win, right? But the concept is, it's not just short accounts. It's the idea that the sin that you really wrestle with, that you struggle with, you might come to the Lord and say, God, I need your forgiveness. I need to turn. And the idea of turning here in scripture so many times is attached to this idea of fasting and fasting for repentance. Um, Jonah, uh, that's just obviously a, a great story for that one. Um, Jonah, forget the well part of the story, but after he gets spit out of the well, he does show up in Nineveh like God commanded him to, to actually tell the people of Nineveh, you are going to be destroyed unless you repent. And so at, once he gives this word from the Lord to the people of Nineveh, it says, now Nineveh, this is verse 3, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Big, big city. That idea of three days. Now, I know that some of you are thinking, 
Yeah, sometimes with LA traffic, it takes me about three days to drive through it. This is the idea that if you were to move through the city, it would take you three days to cross the city on foot. That's, that's pretty crazy. Jonah began, began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. In fact, even the king issued a proclamation, and this is in verse 7, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. So the king not only says, Are not, not a, it's not going to be just me fasting. You're all going to fast. In fact, even your animals, do not feed your animals. There's something there in that turning, in that repentance. And that question is, is how bad do you really want it? Do you really want to turn from the sin? Because if you don't want to turn from the sin and if you don't want to be godly, then don't worry about fasting. Just don't do it. Don't do it. Now, if you want to actually discipline for your, yourself for the purpose of godliness, then you have to deal with the sin in your life. And fasting for repentance becomes a, a very clear example. The last one, and I'm actually going to put in three really quick stories, and so I'm not going to turn to the passages. But this last one is this intimacy with God. It shows up unique and different than everything else. You see, there are fasts that, that somebody might do, a 12-hour fast, a 24-hour fast. They may fast for three days. They may fast for seven days. But you hear these stories of Jesus who fasted for 40 days. Moses, when he's on the mountain with him on Mount Sinai, he fasts for 40 days. Elijah, after the angel feeds him and sends him off to Mount Horeb, which is actually Mount Sinai, he fasts for 40 days. Then you have these 40-day moments that stand out above all the others. They're completely different. And the unique thing about them is that these individuals are not necessarily saying, I'm going to fast, but because they're having a unique, significant, sacred moment with God, they don't eat for 40 days. That there's a difference there that somehow when we're fully engaged with God, that this idea of eating for the sake of eating just moves away. That the idea of being in the presence of God, of having that moment, Moses, literally, when he comes down from the mountain, he's glowing and he has to put a veil over himself because everybody's staring at his skin. It's, it's almost translucent with the glow because he's been in the presence of God. And he has this, he comes down with the tablets, the Ten Commandments. And then you have Elijah who literally has that, that thing from, from where the ravens feed him to where the, the widow who is trying to make bread, she's down to her last oil and flour. And that lasts for months, if not years, it just continues to make more bread. The miracle after miracle happens. And then the fire comes down when he's calling out the prophets of Baal and the fire um, comes down and consumes all of fire from heaven down and consumes all of the altars. All of the, 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 the cows, all of everything that was sacrificed, all of that. This moment when you watch, it's just incredible moments. And then he goes and, and runs faster than a chariot. And then he goes off and, and an angel feeds him. He's having all of these significant spiritual moments. And by that, he ends up fasting for 40 days. And then Jesus a spiritual significant moment. He's been growing up as a little boy. He's coming ready for his ministry and he's baptized. And as he rises out of the water, a voice from heaven stops and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. 
And Jesus now has that moment with his father and is led by the Holy Spirit off into the wilderness to be tempted. And in that, that time, he fasts for 40 days. There's a part of it that I'm not suggesting you fast for 40 days. I'm suggesting that those who have strived hard after the the, the heart of God, who have pursued him, literally have this deeper intimacy, so much so that fasting becomes a key part of who they are. There's one thing about fasting, though, is that when we get to this, and you can hear it show up in a couple of these passages, this idea that maybe if I try fasting, I can sort of level up my spirituality. That somehow I'll be a better saint if I fast or that somehow God is a little bit like a genie in a bottle. And if I rub it just right, then maybe the genie will pop out and do what I ask. Then maybe if I, I've had this challenge, this thing that I've wanted and I've tried and tried and prayed for it, but maybe I just need to fast and then that will do something with God. Well, what I need you to know right now is what is common with every single case of fasting is that it's almost always others focused. It's this striking idea that I had never even thought of before, but as you open up scripture and you start looking at it, even David, when you read what it's saying about him fasting for the baby, it says um, he fasted for the baby's behalf. That Esther said, please fast on my behalf. And that as you hear it again and again, it's this idea that it's, it's the idea of somebody else's in mind in this process. Of how it affects others. And this whole thing plays out that they're not just pursuing their own good at this moment. But they're actually seeking that spiritually better. Remember that willfully depriving yourself of earthly good. For spiritually better, for this thing that's going to be better. The Moses didn't come and after God gave him the Ten Commandments, he didn't stop and go, well, God, can I stick in one? It'd be cool if I had one. Can we just have an Eleventh Commandment? He doesn't do that. He's not pursuing his goal there. He's literally coming to God. He fasts for those 40 days. He comes down with the Ten Commandments, which are literally the guidelines for the people of Israel, that that moment was for others. That Elijah, the whole thing, that, that fasting was the breaking of the drought. And he was talking about repentance of the people of Israel, that they would turn back to God. That Jesus, when he fasted, was the beginning of our salvation. That the whole reason he did that was so that he would be perfected and that he could come and save each of us. That that's what that's about. And that starts to change this idea. But just in case you don't believe me on that one, um, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 58. And many of you know this passage as well, Isaiah 58. Um, It starts off with this idea of why they were fasting. And so we'll look at it in uh, verse 2. It says, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. And then they ask, why have we fasted and you don't see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And then God's answer is because, because behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. That God himself stops and says, you're fasting because you're looking after your own pleasure. You're looking for something for you. This thing is about you. And God is stopping it to say, that's not it. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. 
Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is this such the fast that I choose? In fact, verse 6, he starts that famous line. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? That he stops and he says, the fast that I would choose, that your heart would be broken, that you would be heavy hearted, that you would seek me on behalf of others. That you would be stirred about somebody else's need and it would cause you to move towards that. That that's the fast that God chooses. Not that we're sitting there going, well, how do I use this to make me better? Though we'll tell you that disciplining yourself with these spiritual disciplines will make you better. The goal is always others focused. It's humbling yourself and thinking of others is more important than yourselves. I read that somewhere. I think that might have been the Bible. Here's the case. What turns on this, though, is there is something here in fasting that actually stirs and moves the heart of God. And you can try to get away from it, but you just can't study fasting in Scripture without finding that there is some spiritual mysterious pull that actually stirs the heart of God. It shows up in moments when when Ahab is called out by uh, the prophet that he's deep in sin and that he's going to be killed. God's going to destroy him. And he decides to repent. So he repents. He prays, he fasts, and God stops and says, you see Ahab, he's turned. And because he's fasting, I won't kill him. And he doesn't do what he said he was going to do. That even the story of Nineveh, where Nineveh, Jonah shows up and he shows up to stop and say, look, you got 40 days and then this whole city is going to be destroyed until they fasted. And then God stops and says, hey, did you see what they did? Because they fasted, I will not destroy them. There's something in this, this powerful discipline that stops and says there's something here that God does more. And what I want to do, we'll jump to, um, to Jesus now. And this is in Matthew 6, um, where Jesus is, is talking and he literally puts it out this way. He starts off in, uh, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Uh, for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. The reason why I start there is because he says, beware of practicing your righteousness. This idea of spiritual disciplines can sometimes take on the trappings of righteousness in a right way. That we would study scripture, read his word and meditate on it. That we would pray, that we would fast. Those three disciplines up to this week is as far as we've gotten. But this idea that what happens is these are the ones that start to show up in scripture and Christ himself stops and says, don't practice your righteousness in front of men. But then he gives a list of three things that he then assigns as those things that are acts of righteousness. Literally the discipline you're doing is an act of righteousness. And the ones are it's giving and it's praying and it's fasting. And so I'm going to read those to you really quick. And what I want you to notice is They're assumed that because you are a follower of God, that you would have these things. This would be part of it. 
So if you look at it in Matthew 6, verse 2, thus, when you give to the needy, and then in verse 5, and when you pray, and then in verse 16, and when you fast. That it's not if you give, or if you pray, or if you fast. It's actually when you give, when you pray, and when you fast. The assumption is you're going to be doing these things. That you will give, that you will pray, and that you will fast. And then he says, here's how to do it. And in all of them, it has a similar line. It says, don't do it for other people. Don't take on fasting so that others can see you do it. Try to do that in secret as much as you can. In verse 17, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. And then listen to this line. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. The implication is that if you fast, God is going to do something in your life if you do this. He may not do exactly what you're asking. David praying for the baby. The baby still dies. But he fasted on the baby's behalf. And then God stops and says, I have removed all of that sin from everything you did with Bathsheba. That sin is gone. God did other things in that moment, but it wasn't exactly what David was wanting. This isn't to pull the chain and make God do what you want. But by doing it, it stirs God's heart. And it literally, this is Jesus. And he says, he will reward you. Your heavenly father will reward you. Or that story in Luke 11, uh, Luke Luke 11, where um, verse 5 Jesus says to him, which of you has a friend, uh, which of you who has a friend will, and that, that, I always smile at that. John Schaefer's sitting right up here up front and it's like, which of you who has a friend? So like the rest of you might have friends. John doesn't have any friends. You know, we can't talk about John in this example, but anyway, I'm sorry. I always just smile at the way grammar works, but which of you who has a friend, those of you who have friends, this can apply to you, will go to um, him at midnight and say to him, friend, Could you lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within. Don't bother me. The door is now shut and my children are in are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because of he is because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, because of his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask. And it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. This is God himself saying, don't think that I won't act. Come to me. Seek hard after me. Pursue me. Seek, ask, knock. And I will reward you. I will respond. This whole concept of of why we don't fast is oftentimes, I think, tied to this, that we're afraid that it doesn't really mean much, that it doesn't, nothing really happens out of it. I'm going to fast. I'm going to do that. It'll be a little spiritual thing that I don't eat. But meanwhile, we're not necessarily thinking it's going to stir the heart of God. If it did stir the heart of God, would you do it? If you knew it stirred the heart of God, if it moved God, would you do it? Why wouldn't you do it is the question. John Piper, he says, if we don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because that we have drunk deeply or are satisfied. It is because we have nibbled so long at the table of the world 
that our soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. That we literally get so satisfied with the stuff of the world that we, after a while, just kind of ignore God and think, I don't even really need any great manifestation from God. How sad is that, that we would find ourselves in that point? Fasting is that thing that breaks this open. And this idea that uh, in the book of Joel, it's a great passage that if you want to read it, it's the, the whole thing of where the locusts have come through and they've eaten all the crops and they've just devastated. There are literally different kinds of locusts and they come wave after wave and they decimate Israel. And God stops and calls them back to repentance. And in verse 12, he says, yet even now declares the Lord. This is chapter two of Joel, verse 12. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts, rip your hearts and not your garments. All the time throughout scripture, the part of mourning and turning is ripping your garments and God's going, don't rip your garments, rip your heart. If you really care about this, you will go deep on this with all your heart and pursue God for those things that are heavy on your heart. Now I have to tell you, uh, The story, as I was thinking through this, of times when God has done something in my own life that has been spectacularly tied to prayer and fasting. It was a time when we were living in Seattle and um, 2012 was a year that started off the first three, four months uh, was a pretty violent year in Seattle. In fact, by the time that we had gotten into May, the the murder rate had almost already equaled the entire murder rate of the previous year. The, The crime had just skyrocketed. There were a lot of people dying in the city of Seattle. And then on one given day, uh, a man who was uh, wrestling with some mental health issues went into a coffee shop, a cafe racer coffee shop in the university district. He pulled out a gun and he began shooting people. He killed uh, about four people in the coffee shop and then he jumped on a bus. He went into downtown and once he was in downtown, he jumped off the bus. He shot another lady in a parking lot. He stole her car and he came over into our neighborhood in West Seattle and the police surrounded him and there was a, a shootout and he died there. After the cafe racer shootings with all of these people dying, Seattle had exceeded its its murder rate by, and I don't know the exact number, by many number, by many people. And it was only early May. And at this point in time, the Seattle Times the next day came out with the headlines that says, city gripped by fear because they just saw crime skyrocketing, murder skyrocketing. And the city was terrified about what was going on and that this was getting crazy. It was just out of hand. And with the staff at the mission, and we work with a lot of churches all over Seattle, we decided, you know what? We're supposed to be people of peace. We know about praying for protection. This is a point in time where we could literally call the churches that we were in conversations with about the importance of the church praying. And so we went to the churches and said, if your church is in these areas, could you go to where some of these murders have happened? And literally set up right around that area and pray and fast for our city. That we would bring peace to the city. That we would bring protection to the citizens of the city. And so we called all of our churches and said, would you please do that? And we had some churches that said, yes, we'll
Some churches did their whole churches a fast. Some of our staff, it was just one or two of us that did it. But the year went on and it was a year later that they said, this is the year anniversary of the Cafe Racer shooting. And it struck us, hey, we prayed that God would actually protect and that his hand would move and bring peace and safety to the city. And we never even paid attention what happened after that. Do you know why we didn't pay attention to it afterwards? Because the murder rate plummeted. It no longer made the headlines because it went away. And so I literally went back and did the murder rates. And so in January, there were four murders. In February, there were five murders. In March, there were two. In April, there were two murders. And in May, there were eight murders. And they were on a skyrocket scale. We prayed and fast that day that God would protect the city and bring peace to the city. And in June, there were no murders. And in July, there was one. In August, there was one. In September, there was one. In October, there were two. In November, there were zero. And in December, there were zero. And the murder rate plummeted to the lowest on record for the next seven months. We had come to the almighty, everlasting, living God, and we had prayed and fasted on somebody else's behalf. And we had literally determined that we would afflict our bodies and deny ourselves certain things for the better. And God had acted. And we didn't notice. We just don't go to him believing that he is actually engaging with us intimately, individually. And it's at this moment that I just simply want to turn and say, practically, we're calling you to fast. We're saying, please step into a closer relationship with God. Let him act in your life. So I want to give you just a really fast list of practical ways you can do this uh, to train and pick up this spiritual discipline. You can choose to do 12 hours, 24 hours. Uh, three days, five days, seven days, those kind of things. Um, you do need to know that if you leave out water for more than three days, you die. If you leave out food for like 35, 40 days, you die. So there's certain things you've got to be careful about. See your doctor if you've got health conditions, that kind of a thing. And fasting food is not the only thing you can fast. Uh, there are other things you can fast. Scripture even says that if a married couple is coming in with one of them really wanting to seek heart after the heart of God, that they may be de- deny themselves sexual relations for a period, they fast sex. And so you might look at it and say, well, I'm going to fast TV or I'm going to fast my phone. I'm on my phone all the time. It controls me. Then maybe that's a choice. But you deny yourself something for the better, the spiritual better. So that's the concept. But... Um, and I, what I do most often is I will do something like I will have dinner fairly early. Maybe I eat at six and then I don't eat again for 24 hours. And so I won't have dinner again until maybe seven. And that just simply allows me to have a whole day. And what happens is those hunger pains start kicking in when I would normally eat. And I like breakfast and I like lunch and I like dinner. I like them all. But every time that starts to kick in and I start thinking about it, my thoughts just simply go to God. And it goes to the issue that I'm wrestling with, whether that's guidance or protection or grief or repentance or that intimacy with God, that that's what you want to do. So you can also, some of you may be participating in Lent. You could literally grab the Day of Atonement. But I want to challenge you that, that March has five Mondays in it. So if you just simply say, I'm going to fast 
each of the next five Mondays. You don't have to do that. This isn't a, a religious thing that you do that way. But just the idea that you would stop and pick out something that, that would be uh, the thing you, you fast for. And you figure out how you want to do it. Something that troubles you. Something that disturbs you. Something that God has put on your heart. Ask him what he would have you to fast for. The question is, how bad do you want it? Do you really want to move closer to God? So, four things. Pick an issue or concern about others. Number two, pick a distinct time when you're going to do it. A day. Number three, pick the thing you're going to fast from. Whether that's food or sleep or, or your phone, whatever that might be. And then number four, right out of, of Joel, rend your heart, rip your heart, go before God. Don't just not eat. Use that moment as a time that you pray and fast and come before the Lord. Dare to stir the heart of the living God. It's risky if you go before God and say, God, I want to pay attention to you. You stand to lose more than a meal. You stand to lose more of what is your pleasures and what you want. I want to finish with a quote by C.S. Lewis. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but actually too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child that wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. That you come to this moment that we're so distracted by the things of this earth that when God is promising something far better, far deeper, far richer, this intimate relationship with him to literally pull on God's heart and we might choose to just stay where we are. The spiritual disciplines are ways that it can transform our life, training ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And there are people around us who desperately need our prayers, who need our fasting, and we might get God to move on their behalf. Or, yeah, never mind, don't do it. You don't want to stir the heart of God. Let me pray for us. Lord, I just love that you promise rewards. Not so much that we might get rich or greedy, but Lord, that you engage with us, that you promise you would, you would move your heart if we would move ours. Lord, I would ask for each of us that we might be challenged by you, by your spirit, of what to pray and fast for, of when to pray and fast, of what we might do. And Lord, that we might see your hand move, not just in our lives, but in the lives of the others that we pray for. We love you, Lord. We ask these things in your name. Amen.